On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the December 2016 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation and a lively debate. My first guest is Dr. Brian Fanaki, professor and chief of the vascular and interventional radiology section in the Department of Radiology at the University of Chicago Medicine. He's here to discuss his article, Point, Do the Benefits Outweigh the Risks for Most Patients Under Consideration for IVC Filters? Yes. Brian, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Carl. My next guest is Dr. Mark Lesney from the Vascular and Interventional Specialist of Charlotte Radiology from the Carolinas Healthcare System. He's here to talk about his article, Do the Benefits Outweigh the Risk for Most Patients Under Consideration for IVC Filters? No. <laughs> Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so, so guys, why are we even having this debate? Like, what's the, you know, I, 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 you know I'll take the devil's advocate here. I didn't think there was any controversy over IVC filters. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think um, there is quite a bit of controversy these days over IVC filters, particularly as we've moved into the era of the retrievable filters. And, you know, with that era, we're seeing a lot more complications than we ever saw with permanent filters and uh, concomitant uh, litigation and uh, the profile of filters in general has kind of taken a hit over the past uh, few years. So, you know, I think that it probably, because of all these things, it's raised the spotlight on, well, do these things really work? Uh, why are we putting them in at all? What's the evidence and so forth? And, you know, the big thing about this question was, you know, and, and this is the loaded part of the question is, you know, which patients are under consideration for IVC filters and who do they benefit and for how long? So I think that Mark and I probably differ a little bit, or at least in our articles we do on some of those issues. And uh, I don't know if you want to let Mark start, and then I'll uh, come back or how. Yeah, how, yeah. go right ahead. Go right ahead, Mark. What do you think? I mean, let's just expand on it. You know, why are we having this debate? I mean, um, you know, Brian outlined part of the discussion. Do you, do you have anything else to add to that as far as you know the why we're having it? And then we'll we'll hash into your positions. Yeah, Brian's, I mean, clearly right. This is certainly still a controversial issue. I think, you know, what happened, which is a little bit unique to IVC filters, is we were all sort of lulled into a false sense of understanding of these devices when the permanent devices had been used for decades. And they seemed relatively safe. They weren't, you know, used uh, super often compared to what it is today. And then when they developed these new sort of retrievable or optional devices, what we noticed is that... uh, Implanting physicians started putting these in, um, I think, a lot with the mindset that we're still having the permanent devices, but as Brian pointed out, these are not permanent devices. They have more risk of complications, which we've really discovered over the past 10 years um, how relatively frequent that is. I mean, again, it's not every filter, but it's more than we would like. And so um, there is an effort to be a little bit more judicious about their use than perhaps we have been in the past. Okay, so then let's let's have the two of you start to outline your positions. And what I was struck by, as the uh, non-interventional radiologist, was um, both of you do definitely agree that the literature behind IVC filters isn't exactly robust. That is, is, that, is that a fair assessment? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's there's no question. And as Brian actually and and Ziv Haskell, his his co-author, pointed out in their in their point. Um, it's very difficult to do the appropriate randomized control trials on these patients. Um, you are basically withholding, you would have to withhold a device that we know works in some patients. And since we don't know which patients necessarily benefit and don't, it's difficult to get clinical equipoise. And so I think the, the lack of literature is not necessarily an indictment of the you know, community, but more right. sort of a stress that how difficult it is at doing those kinds of studies. And then I, I would add to that that, you know, people 
sort of really look to, and, and rightfully so, level one evidence for everything, and, and to a certain degree discount everything else. Um, and the level one evidence that, that exists for filters is largely um, doesn't really support use. And the main reason for that is that the two studies, the two really well-designed and, and well-performed studies that are in the literature and that have been performed, um, have more or less shown that if you add filters on top of anticoagulation, you really get no benefit. And in fact, you probably have more down the road in, in, in terms of complications than you want. Uh, and because of that, I think, though, people sort of at times wrongfully say, okay, well, filters, there's no proof that filters work. Uh, when, in fact, you know, one of the points of, of our, our argument was this study or the studies that have been done are, are sort of trials of redundancy. I mean, they, they kind of show on top of anticoagulation, filters really aren't going to help much. And that's, frankly, not, not groundbreaking as far as I'm concerned. And if you look at at Kyle R. Hospital, you know, right. the people that are under consideration for IBC filters are not people that are receiving anticoagulation. It's the people that either fail anticoagulation or can't get it for some reason. So, you know, in our local environment, the people who are under consideration for IBC filters can't get anticoagulation. And those patients, I think, clearly filters offer a benefit. Mark, what do you think? Yeah, so I think, you know, Brian's point is, is spot on. The well, the point we made in our counter-argument is the PREPIC study, which is the, the big randomized control trial he was referencing, that actually went back and looked eight years later, which is a pretty robust data set, is really interesting, really well-designed, but almost irrelevant. Because, like he said, it is sort of double-protecting patients, and that's not our typical population. Our population is for patients who should receive um, anticoagulation, but cannot receive anticoagulation. And so the truth is, these studies that we hold up as sort of the prime example of why filters do or don't work are sort of not relevant to today's um, environment. Now, that said, you look at an institution like you know, Brian's or the way we practice here, and we, we think we're doing the right thing. The problem is we have to look sort of globally and nationwide that filters are being placed for spurious indications at times. And again, this is not to malign implanting physicians. I think part of the problem, which is what we address, is the guidelines are so disparate and the guidelines are so confusing and ambiguous that it is difficult for someone who is not you know, an absolute expert who's well-versed in all this literature to really make the decision when and when not to place a filter. Well, and there's, I would argue that there seems to be, and maybe you guys can correct me on this, but there's a definite perceived perception that, okay, these things work and they seem relatively safe. And it's, like you said, as to why we can't even get a, a, a perfect study done, because how can you randomize someone against a standard of care device, right? It's considered standard of care. And, and so they're, they're, that's putting our limits on the literature already. But I think, and this is where I want the both of you to expand, they, they've become, or at least generally speaking, seem to have become commonplace enough that the indication for them or when doctors thought about asking you all to put one in seemed to start to expand. And, and Brian alluded to it with the removable, retrievable filters. Suddenly it's like, well, gosh, we can, we can stick one you know, in anybody. <laughs> you know, let's put one on before we go on a long flight. <laughs> you know, um, so if you guys could expand on that whole area. Yeah, that's absolutely correct, and that's a, that's a very tricky and a slippery slope. And, and, you know, primarily even what people define as, quote, prophylactic IVC filters, end quote, is not agreed upon in the literature. I mean, some people uh, will call those people that either are at risk for PE or DVT but don't currently have it, and other people will just say those are people with DVT 
but don't have PE yet, right? So you can think of it in either way. You know, we, we generally, when I think about a prophylactic filter, it, to me, it's putting a filter in somebody who doesn't have PE or DVT, but is at risk for. And that's primarily two populations, if you think about it nationwide, and that's, that's the bariatric population before surgery and the trauma population. And both of, both of those populations are, as we know, at risk for developing PEs and DVTs. And in those patients, particularly with the advent of retrievable filters, you saw a lot of people putting a lot of filters in on those patients. Now, the benefits of in that situation is a little trickier to know. And, I, you know, I really, it's a little surprising that there hasn't been a robust trial looking at those things. And in those populations right now, it's, it's very, very controversial on whether they should or should not receive filters. Now, some of the meta-analysis would say they provide benefit, others say they don't, but, you know, there's really a lack of evidence in those areas. And, and like you say, I think when people sort of psychologically go, well, we can put these things in and we can take them out now, they're going to loosen, in general, their indications for placing a filter. So people that are sort of on the fence, that maybe they all get filters now. And I think that's part of the reason why you see, you've seen an explosion in, in the number of filters placed. Now, there's other reasons also. Another reason is that multiple different um, proceduralists are starting to put in filters, including cardiologists and vascular surgeries, where vascular surgeons were previously, a lot of this was done in interventional radiology, and as a referral-based service, you know, you tend to, that tends to be a little bit of a gatekeeper role in some respect. Right. So there's that, there's a financial reimbursement for it, but now sort of what's, if you look at, you know, some of the recent data as far as filters going in, you saw an explosion up to about the year 2010, and it's leveled off quite a bit. And I think some of what you're seeing leveling off now is because there's declining reimbursement for placing filters, and it's a very litigious subject. I mean, everybody's getting sued for these things, including the filter companies. And some of the filter companies now, we're starting to see them start, start to take their devices off the market, which is something we've never seen in the past. Yeah, so, you know... To, to add what to what Brian was, <laughs> yeah, to add what Brian was saying, um, you know that 2002 is sort of an interesting timeline. So there was a sort of a landmark article in the Annals of Internal Medicine that really brought to light how much uh, these filters can cause damage. Now again, it's not common, um, but it's clearly more than we thought. And then since then, there have been just a you know multiplicity of articles that show all the different complications that can happen from IBC filters. And if anyone ever watches daytime TV, uh, we know that this information is getting to the patient. Uh, there's commercials. Uh, if you right. there was a time when you Googled IBC filter, the first few pages were lawyers. Um, and so I think that drawback. Um, may not necessarily be a bad thing, because as, as you mentioned, I think there has been an expansion of IVC filter placements that without significant data. And when I say that, I absolutely am talking about the prophylactic filters. Um, like Brian mentioned, I think a patient who you know, needs anticoagulation cannot get an anticoagulation and therefore should get a filter because they have some venous thromboembolic event, that's much less controversial than the other component of the prophylactic filters. And so this, you know, this patient population that we may be throwing filters in unnecessarily, I think, has come back a little bit, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. And then the other thing I would add, which I, I assume we'll, we'll have to talk about, is our emphasis on filter retrievals has gotten so much better in the past, really, I mean, five to eight years, and I think that's going to be key. Yeah, can you guys expand on that? Because, you know, again, as the, the non-interventionalist, you know, when the ad, from the ICU perspective, you know, when they, uh, uh, we would ask for a retrievable filter, you know, I, I had no perception that 
uh, it, it makes sense, of course, but that the, for lack of a better word, quality of this filter, as far as its robustness and its longevity, um, would be less than the you know the standard permanent IVC filter. Of course, it makes sense in retrospect, but I don't think there was that perception. And so it was like, okay, we'll put a retrievable one in, and then but if we forget to take it out, or if the patient's indications shift and it turns out they do need to leave it in permanently, eh, who cares? It's already there. And as you guys are saying, well, yeah, but these things weren't built the same way, and to make them retrievable, they didn't have that same robust quality that the, you know, the ones that, that, you know, were the standard and were the ones that were left in permanently. Am I thinking about that correctly? You're absolutely right. right. Kyle, you're not, you're not alone in that. I mean, I think that's the whole field <laughs> thought right. that exact same thing because this is, they came to market under the same, you know, within the FDA as, as pretty much the same device, you know, right. the hey, FDA even <laughs> didn't put it through, right. The FDA didn't even put it through, uh, you know, the same rigorous testing that you would for a new device. So, and they're, to, to make that even more complicated is they are approved as a permanent device. All these things are approved as permanent devices. So that makes it even, even trickier, right? So for years what was done in interventional radiology where filters were placed, but by and large, you know, as a referral-based specialty, these weren't our patients. We weren't following them longitudinally. And, you know, there was really no obvious reason to need to do that. So then what happened is you started to see a lot of these complications and, you know, the way we did things in interventional radiology was, was inadequate, frankly. And what happened now and what's happened, in like, like Mark said, in the last five years or so is every one of these patients that gets a retrievable filter is followed longitudinally in you know, any major institution at this point in time, and the FDA mandates that. So, for example, at the University of Chicago, patient, we, we put a filter in, they go into a data tracking you know, a database, and we track them at three months, six months, and so forth until either we take the filter out or it's determined we can't take the filter out at some point. But essentially, they're, they're going to be tracked longitudinally for life, and we contact them, and we contact the, the primary care providers to say, you know, it's been three months, can this filter come out now? Because what we would, you know, what had been done in the past was you would say, well, you know, the person who requested the filter can request the filter come out when it's appropriate, and that what was happening is all these patients were falling through the cracks. So you right. would see, you know, 100% of filters going in and 5% of them taken out. Now, here from the get-go, we've actually been pretty good at following these filters because we sort of had a, an official process in place to do that. But that's a lot different from many interventional radiology sections. And, and like I said, over the last five years, what you saw was a filter clinic that's developed in most places, and that's how they follow these people. Yeah, and the, you know, with regard to permanent versus uh, retrievable filters, you know, think about it from an engineering standpoint. The whole purpose of an optional filter is that one should be able to retrieve it. It is designed so that it can be retrieved. So by definition, it is less secure. Right. And part of the engineering difficulty is that these filters can migrate, they can break, um, they can perforate the cava just by, because of different uh, tensile forces. And I'll tell you, you know, for those of us um, who, some of us, you know, retrieve permanent filters, filters that were never designed to be removed for, you know, indications um, for, for patients who, who really need that filter out, it is a much more involved process to get a permanent filter out than a retrievable filter. And so just by engineering alone, it sort of makes sense, and we sort of didn't think of it at the time probably, but it makes sense that these should not necessarily be, stay, should be uh, kept in forever. Um, you know, and to Brian's point, I'll, since this is a point-counterpoint, I'll subtly disagree with him in this. You know, I think we, as in a couple of us, a few of us, most of us, do a great job tracking these filters, and clearly Brian's group is, you know, top of the class with that. 
I just don't know any evidence or data that suggests that that's true nationwide. And especially what Brian says, um, you know, other specialties are placing filters. I don't know that the literature has permeated to their specialty in a practical way that right. says we should be having IVC filters clinics. We should be following these patients. And so, you know, that would be an interesting study. How many of these nowadays actually are tracked and withdrawn um, in an appropriate manner? Yeah, and the, 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 the thing that makes that even another layer of complexity added onto that is there's no data that suggests these things should come out. We don't know right. the answer to that. We just think that they should come out based on some of the complications we've seen and the fact that there's a, a, a spotlight shined on these things. But, you know, there have been no longitudinal studies that say, okay, well, the patients that get them out do, do this well and the patients that don't get them out do that well. So we don't, none of that data exists either. Yeah, and, right, and we've, you know, to, we're basing it off of complications. Right. right. Yeah, and, to, you know, to, to add to that, you know, for those of us who run IVC filter clinics, it's not exactly straightforward. There are a lot of patients who come in, and it is a head-scratcher, and it is a long discussion with the patient, with the hematologist involved, with possibly, you know, possibly the oncologist involved, to figure out what the right thing to do is. Um, so not only is there no, not necessarily data which patients should have filters removed, but there's not a ton of guidelines as to which filters should be removed, and a lot of it is, I hate saying it, on-the-fly sort of best practices decision. Well, it sounds like filter clinic might also be a fairly complicated structure. I mean, from the perspective of, you know, this is you put the you put the device in, but you have you're not managing this patient's otherwise complex medical problems that led to the first indication to begin with. And Correct. you know, it strikes me that you guys are making a lot of phone calls to primary care doctors and to oncologists and hematologists saying and you know, and pulmonologists, what's the story here? Why did this go in? Why, you know, do they still have this reason for it, et cetera, et cetera? Um, you know, and it just strikes me as it could, even having the clinic is, is still a potential landmine of, of patient management. And that I'm sure the default is, well, we don't know, so we're going to keep it in. Yeah, that's by and large, that's exactly the way it is. I mean, you know, we try to say, is there, you know, would this patient be on anticoagulation now if they couldn't have the filter? And if the answer to that question is yes, then we leave the filter in generally. Right. Yeah, and that's a really good question. So that is how I approach all my IVC filter patients, is if they came to me today and requested a filter be placed, would I place it? If the answer is no, then by definition, they don't need their filter. And then the second layer of that now, is it worth it? If this is a 98-year-old patient with a four-year-old filter, I probably will leave it in. If it's a 20-year-old patient with a permanent filter, I probably will take it out. Um, but I tell you, there's a lot of, you know, hematology. You know, we have to be up to date on the hematology guidelines and some oncology um, DVT guidelines. Um, and, again, you know, I think some of the higher-end centers do that. I just don't know that that's happening nationwide. And I think, like you said, the default is, I don't know, leave the filter in. Right. So, um Interesting. That's uh, think about that from that that and that headache <laughs> perspective. Does does the okay? So let's say um, I was thought uh, I'm a patient. I thought that I had a temporary indication for for filter, and um, turns out you know no, it's you know you put one in a retrievable filter. It's six months later, and it sure looks like I've got now a permanent indication. You swap out the retrievable to put a permanent one in, or you just <laughs> declare that the retrievable one's a permanent one. Now that we know that the engineering is not as good from the perspective of, you know, the, the device itself. So what we do here is we kind of look at the iteration of the filter that was placed. So a lot of the complications, frankly, were, were you know, the first and early second generation filters. And, and not, that, not that we know that the newer filters aren't going to ultimately have some of those same complications, but 
I think that the filter makers also realize sort of the errors and the newer devices, at least early on, seem to have less complications than, than some of the, the first-generation retrievable filters. Right. Um, that being said, you know, as a general rule here, we tend to just leave the filter in. Now, you know, if we see any problem with the filter, is it tilted, is it perforating the cave, is there some reason to take it out, then we will take it out. But if it otherwise looks fine, we probably will generally leave it. Yeah, That's I agree with that. I, yeah, it's a great question. I, I tend not to swap filters, um, but I, just like Brian, I specifically look at the filter type, and I am much more vigilant about either tracking that filter, removing that filter, or you know, sort of emphasizing that this filter is one that has been known to have complications. Um, and it certainly influences decision-making. You know, again, there's certain filter types that I'm willing to you know, remove in almost anybody because they're so easy to take out, and, you know, and their, their risk of complication is great. Um, and there are certain filters that are, you know, historically pretty safe, and so my threshold to remove them is a little bit lower if it's controversial. So, I mean, part of the discussion, you know, this point-counterpoint, you know, is to, you know, they're, they're very large blanket statements to obviously create controversy and discussion. But, you know, let's see if we can find some areas of agreement on the type of patient, because that's, that's been really the key. I think both the articles really, you know, highlight the, the sort of, and, and, and I know you do with uh, Mark, because you basically talk about, you know, here's the amount of filters they place in, you know, comparable-sized countries and populations, and, you know, we're tenfold higher, or, or, or I can't remember the exact number. But, you know, why are we so filter-happy here? And so, and, it was, and it's, I don't think either of you, you know, I, well, I know, you know, you don't, and, and I don't, I'm not going to put words into Brian's mouth, but I doubt he's uh, got the position of free filters for everybody. But, but there's got to be populations in your mind that both of you agree automatically, yes, if the, you know, if they, They've got the DVT. They've got an anti, uh, a contraindication to anticoagulation. You know, boom, filter, and you know, no debate about this. You know, we all agree, put it in. Is there is there that commonality of a type of patient that you both agree? Yes, filter, permanent, put it in. End of story. So I I, I would say in general, uh, for us, somebody who is somewhat, you know. Older, older meaning probably more than age 70, uh, doesn't have a great life expectancy, um, will often place permanent filters in. Now, that being said, you know, the tricky part about it always is, well, you know, maybe they don't have a permanent indication, so maybe we should put a temporary one in and then take it out at some point. Um, certainly in younger patients, uh, we tend to place temporary filters or, or, or retrievable filters and take them out. I mean, that's that's for sure the way we do it. And in for, as far as sort of the controversy versus non-controversy, I think anybody that can't get anticoagulation who has an indication for anticoagulation should get a filter. And in fact, here we put in filters in the middle of the night. We do them emergently, which, you know, uh, for something that some people think has no benefit whatsoever is kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> but that's what we do. <laughs> so, you know, we, we, you know, I was in last week putting in a filter at midnight in a patient in the ICU. So it's not not that rare that we do these things off hours even. So they are considered to be, you know, somewhat urgent cases in some instances. Yeah, and I, um, I place zero permanent filters. Um, and the reason is, to my mind, they're either, they fall into two categories. Patients are either young enough that I can put in a temporary filter and retrieve it uh, if they have, you know, a possibly temporary indication, or they're old enough where, you know, even though I put in a temporary filter nowadays, the temporary or the optional filters I place, I feel like they're secure enough that they can last, you know, two years, whatever the, the um, life expectancy is. You know, and the other thing is, 
I do retrieve filters on patients who are over 70 and in some cases over 80. And the reason is, you know, with such good tracking, we can get these patients back in three months. And it really is a 10-minute procedure. I mean, if you're experienced and the patients um, are, you know, following up in three and six months and not, you know, three to six years, these are pretty reasonable procedures. The other thing I would add, and actually Brian sort of touched on this, patients who need anticoagulation but can't receive it should get filters. I agree with that. But implicit in that is the fact that we sort of assume that hematologists have everything figured out as well, and that's not true. The hematology guidelines and literature is littered with some controversy as well as to who really should get anticoagulation, who really is contraindicated for anticoagulation. And there have been times where we'll place a filter for contraindication to anticoagulation to find out the patient's anticoagulated two days later. Well, clearly their (laughs) contraindication probably didn't disappear in two days. We just sort of misinterpreted it. Well, and that comes that comes back to that I think perception for the the non the non proceduralist of the role of a filter because it's just this benign thing. So, oh, can we put it in? Well, no, it turns out he's not bleeding. We can go ahead and put him on anticoagulation as well, right? It's sort of this, and and, it, and I think you both would agree that that you know that attitude you know needs to change amongst the the people who are asking you all to do this. But let me ask you another question, and it'll be a loaded one, but. Um, uh, do, do and, I, and I'm, I know the two of you do this, but but if you're if you're if you think about it generically across your profession, is there an extensive amount of evaluation of the patient before a filter is placed, or is it a hey we are a you know relatively a service based model? They've asked for a filter. I don't see anything glaring. It's a simple procedure. Let's just pop one in. That's a very loaded question, and I, and I excluded the two of you. But do you think there's a component of that? I would say that uh, as time has gone on, it has become a lot more incumbent upon us to look at these patients. And, and part of it is self-preservation because right. you know, nobody wants to be sued for filters, yet it's so commonplace now. You know, if you're putting them in for weak indications or no indications, you're going to be held up because, you know, right. the FDA has already said if you're, you're the proceduralist, you put the filter in, it's your job to follow the patient, it's your job to do all these things. So I, I, think, that, I think that in general you are seeing people look at them a lot more critically than they have in the past. Good. And, okay. you know, along with that, I think as reimbursements have declined for filters, you know, the risk-benefit of doing them is changing. So that profile is changing even in a private practice situation where, you know, somebody's not going to put a filter in somebody that doesn't need it because, you know, they have to follow them, they have to get it out. There's a lot of pain that goes along with these things. Right. No, fair enough. Yeah. And if I could just add to that, so not to make this just about interventional radiology, because like we talked about, other specialties do it, but Correct. I think globally, interventional radiology has sort of gone through a major shift over the past decade. And so not only with IBC filters, but with everything, you know, patients with vascular disease and liver cancers and oncology, um, you're now starting to find it harder and harder to find an interventional service that doesn't have a consulting service, doesn't have a clinic. Um, and so that model is really, I mean, I'm sort of a you know, the generation of we are a very clinical specialty. And so, you know, I assume currently and in the future, it'll just become more and more of a consulting service rather than, a, oh, you place the order, I'll just do it blindly, um, right. which is obviously the way it should be. I mean, this, these are our patients. We should have responsibility for them. Right. I've been struck from the outside perspective that, you know, your field has been evolving rapidly in a very excellent way, you know, not not just on the tech side, but like in in the consultative, you know, as I'm hearing you both say, and, I, and then that's why I, mean, I, I, I fired it out as a loaded question on purpose. <laughs> so, sure. 
what haven't we talked about, guys? We've been talking for a little bit. What what points in your point counterpoint did we not get across, or what haven't we brought up that sort of highlights this? You know, one thing that we haven't talked about, and I, I briefly mentioned it, is the fact that that the lawsuits that are involved in these things are really starting to, I think, affect manufacturers. And like I said, you know, it would be really a shame if a lot of these things got pulled off the market because of uh, these giant class action lawsuits. And, 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 I mean, they're giant. You're talking about thousands of thousands of lawsuits now going against some of these companies. And we even wow. get, you know, uh, requests. We've had a number of requests where we've taken filters out and we've gotten, you know, essentially requests from lawyers to keep the filter, and they want the filter as part of a, a class action lawsuit. Wow. So I think you're starting to see, and, I, and even this morning, you're starting to see some of the major filter companies say, well, you know what, this might not even be worth our time because, you know, the risk that they, they're under also is very high. So you're saying there's a, there's a fear that the device may leave the market more out of a, as a business decision of it's just too costly Correct. to continue to manufacture in this area. Correct. In fact, there are two devices that are FDA-approved right now that aren't available. And, you know, we're seeing some of the larger filter makers starting to pull back. So it, it's a little bit scary because it, there certainly is a legitimate role for filters, no matter what you believe, I think. And to not have them available would be awful. Correct. Yeah, it makes no sense to throw out you know the baby with the bathwater in this situation, and that the concern is that uh, you know all these external pressures are going to force their hand. Um, the other issue I wanted to bring up, and actually get you know Brian's opinion on this, you know Brian, I think we all sort of see and have seen more commonly these patients with either chronically indwelling optional filters or permanent filters. And so the idea of, you know, who's giving us guidelines as to when this should be removed? Should we be removing, you know, 10-year-old permanent filters requiring a laser extraction on a 90-year-old? Um, probably not. But whose responsibility is it to sort of give us guidance? Because um, I have to tell you, in those situations, that's another area where we are flying blind quite a bit. Yeah, and, and there's a complete lack of data, too, right? So, I mean, I don't even know even expert, you could get an expert consensus because nobody really knows. And, and right now, it's certainly a case-by-case -case decision, and, and nobody knows what the right answer is. I mean, on either end of the spectrum, you can probably say, yeah, right, you know, an 18-year-old with a permanent filter who's having problems related to the filter, let's try to get it out. But a 90-year-old with, you know, who's otherwise, you know, terminal, you, you probably leave it, leave it alone. Right. And then that leaves a giant group in the middle where you really don't know what to do. <laughs> right. Now, right. we in general will not touch a permanent filter unless there's some really good reason to take it out. Um, whether it's, you know, perforated into an adjacent structure, whether it's causing chronic pain, you know, there, there are reasons to go after those things. Um, that being said, you know, the retrievable filters, we try to get them all out when we can. Excellent. Well, guys, this was, as expected, a, a fantastic conversation. Um, I really, really appreciate your time, and I really appreciate uh, the, the terrific articles, and then, and then obviously this, this great discussion that added to that. So thank you. And for our listeners, definitely go, go read the articles. There's a whole bunch of other points being made and some really great references to the literature uh, to help frame this discussion even more for, for the clinicians listening. So thank you both. Thanks. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys.